Kind of living in this, uh, I call it sexual revolution 2.0. If the sexual revolution started in the 1960s and the hippies and, and, uh, and that whole era, I would say before the new millennium or around the new millennium, it kind of swept across our land to the point that it's this sexual revolution 2.0 has just taken over. It's affecting how we educate our children, how we parent our children, how we live in relationships with one another, how we govern how the government governs us. It's an incredible, the impact and the influence that this 2.0 has had on our world. And it's not just one particular area. It's across the whole spectrum uh, of just the whole sexuality. In fact, as we, as we come to this, I, I also realized that back in 2018, I think it was in the fall, we as pastors started diving into this topic and spending a lot of time every week, week over week, studying it, debating it, discussing how do we address this? 2018, okay? To the present, I've been praying about how do we, how do I lead our church into this space because I'm uncomfortable with it. We're all unco- uncomfortable with it, but I feel like it's getting out of control if it's not already there. How do we get there? How do we come into this space? Because it's kind of like a dichotomy. It's kind of like you have the truth sayers. And again, we're talking about living in that tension of the band and the power of the band. Those truth sayers will tell you like it is. And they'll, 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 they'll point at you and they'll tell you where you're wrong. And the grace sayers. I just want to affirm, I just love his love. And somehow there's in the middle of that. And so I wanted to bring in somebody who truly could speak to this from a position of, uh, of a personal authority, biblical authority. And I'm so glad because of your consistent budgeted generosity, week over week, Month over month, we're able to do this absolutely uh, of no charge and actually even able to extend it out. So we have five churches that are going to be joining us tonight, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, bringing some of their people to be a part of a training. We're actually doing an intense training with our pastors tomorrow morning. And so because of your giving, again, we're able to stretch that out and, 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 and work in the kingdom. So thank you for your generosity. We could not do it without you. But let me tell you about our speaker in the sense that when we came to this series, the series of messages, Messy Jesus I really had just finished reading the first book, Messy Grace, uh, of Caleb Kaltenbach. And, and that one right there just changed my thoughts in so many ways. Just in August, or in uh, maybe, rec- maybe somewhere around August this fall, Messy Truth came out and f- devoured that one as well. And I thought, this is a time where we need to talk about the tension with somebody who's lived in the tension, grew up in that tension, and how to navigate that. And so this is where we're going today. So we're going to get to hear from Kayla, but also tonight, I want to invite you back tonight at 5. Five tonight, five tomorrow. And I know it's awkward times, but it's one of those times that we just get it locked in. Five o'clock today, five o'clock tonight, or five o'clock tomorrow night. We're going to have two different seminar sessions that you want to be a part of. Tonight, we're going to talk about is the Bible against the LGBT. Q community. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to come right behind that and talk about how do we live with love and empathy for those who live in that lifestyle? 
Okay, because we need to think about that, living in that tension of grace and truth. And then tomorrow, again, if you're a parent, you need to listen to this. If you're a grandparent, you might want to come to this as well, because we're going to deal with parents and especially student parents and workers of students. This is not a time to bring your kids. This is not a time for that. This is a time to help train parents. When all of a sudden your kid walks in the room, has an awkward conversation with you about a friend at school that said this or that they feel a certain way, how do we go there? as a parent. And so that's what tomorrow night's about five to seven. I want to encourage you to be part of it. Where can you find out more about all of this and about uh, Caleb's books? Just text in right now, messy to nine seven triple zero. You'll get a website back. Even when Caleb's talking, you can sign up for tonight and tomorrow night. We'd love to have you a part of that, but also all the content that I've just shared and a lot more free resources are there. But I want to pray for today. Pray for Caleb as he comes to share with us. Would you join me in praying for him? Well, Father, we commit ourselves to you to live in surrender of you. Lord, you are the God who made the universe. We just sang about it. You're the God who made it all, but you're the God who we can rest in your arms. Father, a part of that is taking our sexuality, putting it on the altar and saying, it's yours, Lord. All of me, every part of me is yours, God. So Father, I pray that in this space, you'll do what only you can do. You'll speak to our hearts You'll speak to our hearts in grace and in truth. And I pray that you'd strengthen and give strength to Caleb as he comes and as he shares with us right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Come on up here, brother. Give him a welcome to Northwest Arkansas. Thank you, brother. Hey, glad to be with you. Uh, this is familiar territory uh, for me. I currently, I live in Los Angeles, but I'm not from there. I live in Los Angeles uh, because my wife and I, we love giving all of our money away to the state and the government. So that's why we live in California. That and Disneyland are the two reasons why, um, which is better than Disney World. And if you disagree, you're wrong. We can talk about that afterwards. But... Um, I'm originally from Columbia, Missouri, Kansas City. I went to college in Joplin, Missouri. So, oh, whoa. Never heard that for Joplin before, but yay. <laughs> whoop, whoop. So, um, you know, love, love this area. Been here before. And um, I, I just got to say, man, I love Pastor Mike and love his wife. And he is a fast friend. He's a new friend. I've got some college friends who go here, one even on staff named Anya and so on. So, I just want to let you know, if you're visiting this church, if you're checking underneath the hood, kicking the tires, seeing if this is where you want to land, man, I hope that you'll keep on coming back because this is a place where it's okay not to be okay. Okay? Real quick, in a non-creepy way, look at the people around you. Uh, do that in a non-creepy way real quick. Look look at people. See those people? They're all messed up. Okay? They're like, wow, thank you for inviting me, Caleb, to church and insult me. No, we really are. Everybody's messed up. If they tell you they're not, they're a liar, and you automatically know that they are. But here's the deal. We at this church, it's okay not to be okay, but we all gather together and we follow Jesus and support one another. So you are not alone. So I hope that you keep on uh, coming and checking out this series and, and just in the next series and seeing what God is going to do here and what God can do through you and hope that you invite somebody as well um, next uh, weekend. So a um, little bit more about me. Um, as I said, I, we live in Los Angeles. Um, I've been married for over 17 years now, which is a shocker. 
I told my wife that she should get a medal. She used to be an elementary school teacher. Now she's a uh, therapist, which I think I pushed her that way uh, personally. I think that's how that happened. But anyway, uh, we have two kids. We have our son, Joel, who's 14, and our daughter, Rachel, who's 12, going on 19 already. And so I love both my kids, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth because it was unique. And the reason why it was unique was because we tried and tried and tried to have kids and we couldn't. I don't know if you know how difficult it can be to struggle with fertility, but it is just, it takes everything out of you. And so like uh, we started going through depression. I you know, threw myself into my work, which is destructive. My wife was much more destructive, started watching Twilight movies and Hugh Grant movies over and over again. And I'm like, this is enough. We're going to get an immaculate conception or a fertility clinic or adoption, but no more Twilight or Hugh Grant. And so we went to a fertility clinic. We got pregnant with our son Joel on the first try and Rachel on the second try. And I got to tell you something. I know um, when we found out we were pregnant, I lied and, and called in to work sick. And I know that's a lie, but this is also called Grace Point Church, so leave me alone. Get off my back. I was excited from all these years of not being able to have kids. I mean, we were pregnant. We like we were the annoying couple you would never want to have over to your house because we monopolized conversations, talked about our pregnancies. We lost friends. Who cares? We'll get new friends. Okay? We'll get pregnant friends. I don't know. Who cares? And like we couldn't I couldn't wait to get to the hospital. You know why? Because I had seen the movies. I knew it was going to happen. I knew the baby was going to come out. There's going to be a light shining from heaven. Epic underscoring Star Wars music. The baby would come out pristine clean, making cute baby noises, grab my finger, and with perfect pronunciation would say the word father. <laughs> that did not happen. Okay? Uh, everything was going great when we got to the hospital, and they hooked my wife up to the hospital or whatever they do there. Um, and everything was good until she started feeling pain. And then she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with at that point. (laughs) I put my head on her shoulder, my head, my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her. And she's like, don't you touch me right now. I'm like, all right, uh, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is. We need an old priest and a young priest in room two. Um, But they sent drugs and they gave my wife drugs and she went back to loving God and people at that point. Um, And then when it was time for my son to come into the world, they brought in a plastic mat and put it all over the floor. And it looked like they're wearing hazmat outfits and a welding mask. And I went up to the doctor. I'm like, is something going to explode? Um, Because I'm not covered. And doctor said, you're going to be okay. Doctor gets in the the quarterback position. I'm going to catch my kid. My son comes out. And literally, my expression went from this to, oh. He came out, I was like, put him back in, he needs to cook some more, he's not done yet. Like, he came out, he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for, he smelled weird, okay, he didn't make cute cooing baby noises, he sounded, he growled like the creature from the Black Lagoon, Um, like his head was uh, square and circular-ish and triangular-ish and trapezoid-ish. And Pentagon, just all the shapes in one, believe it or not. It was like a Rubik's Cube that was weird. And I, if you can't tell, I have ADHD, so I don't always have a filter. And I definitely didn't in, in that moment, which can be good and bad. But they wrapped up my son in a blanket, gave him to me. They said, what do you think, Dad? And without even knowing what I was saying, I said, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> so the first words about my son. 
My daughter, when she was born, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, you would have said, man, it was messy. And it was. It was messy, messier than what you know. And some of you have been there. You've seen it. Some of you haven't. Good luck if you're ever there. You know, but, but here's the deal. In that moment, I don't know where it came from, but I just, I loved my son in that moment. And I loved my daughter. I didn't care how messy they were. I loved them. It didn't matter what they would do to me. And believe me, my children have done things to me, okay? They have, they have, they have taken my money already, okay? They gaslight me sometimes. They, they bring home uh, the stomach flu and colds. Um, I used to look like Zac Efron before I had children. <laughs> and then I had children. And this is like 14 years of rough living right here, okay? So... This is an advertisement for parenting. Um, if you don't have kids, this is what happens when you do have children. I, I used to be taller. I mean, just all these things. So <laughs> locks of flowing hair, and then children happened, and this happened. Okay? But it doesn't matter what my kids have done. I love them. And they haven't done anything other than to just be there to earn my love. I want to let you know that that's how God feels about you. Here's the thing. We, both Christians and non-Christians, both, because I don't know if you know, Christians can be annoying too, right? Everybody know that? <laughs> like I'm married to one. No, let's not go there, okay? <laughs> both Christians and non-Christians, both of them, they can really, really hurt you and impact you, right? I mean, human beings in general, we're a bunch of sinful, evil people, and we're like pretty good at categorizing people defining people by their mess and labeling people. You know the labels and the definitions and the categorizations we give people without even really knowing them? Will we just really push people to the side because of who they voted for, what political party they belong to, whether they wear a mask or not, whether they watch this news channel or that news channel, um, whether they have all this money in the bank, no money in the bank, the organization they work for, the organization they don't work for anymore, the church they go to, the beliefs they have, the political ideologies, the movies they watch, and whether or not they're Raiders fans, I don't know if that can be helped. I'm a Chiefs fan, but Raiders... Yeah, save people here. Thank you. But here's the deal. We do a great job of categorizing people, slapping on labels, putting false definitions, and when you get into a relationship with Jesus, he takes you out of the categories, rips off the false labels, looks past the definitions that lie, and says, that's my child. And I love my child. And there's nothing you could ever do to get... God to love you less. But again, it's not just in our own relationships with other people. It's in larger society as well. It's hard to remember that, remember how much God loves you, and to remember who you are in Christ if you're following him, or who you have the potential to be if you're not, because society is always trying to get you to make something else your primary identity other than Jesus. They say, no, your, your sexuality your gender identity, those, that needs to be your main identity. Here's the deal, though. I don't know if you know this or not, but like your, your sexuality, God never created that for, you, for that to be your main identity. It will crumble under the weight of your identity. They try to get you to say, well, your, your race and your ethnicity, that needs to be your main identity. It's definitely a significant part of who you are, but... Think about what has happened in history when that becomes somebody's main identity. 
They say, well, your politics needs to be your main identity. Well, okay, both sides of the aisle. Which one has the mind of Christ? That's why I tell people, first and foremost, you know what I am? I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. Because in this book, I see God's kingdom lasting forever. My confidence, 100% in him. We have to remember who we are because, listen, everything in the world is competing for your attention, your devotion, your identity, not which least of these is yourself. And there's this gravitational pull inside of all of us which pulls us to ourselves and tries to get us to make ourselves the main focus of our lives and put ourselves on, the th- on our own throne of our life instead of Jesus. So how can we remember who we are in a society that is always trying to dissuade us from identifying with Jesus, whether it knows it's doing it or not? when we are distracted by our own insecurities, when we are distracted by our friendships, relationships, family, and so on and so forth, how do we remember, how do we see who we are? Well, today, we're going to turn to a passage, and we're going to have the words on the screen in just a moment. Um, Not yet, but just a moment. So we're going to be in uh, the book of Matthew. Now, if you have your Bible, Bibles or mobile devices, you can turn to Matthew 22. Now, if you do not have your Bibles or mobile devices. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in church. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you thought she was cute and you followed her in here in a non-stalker way. Um, whatever that looks like, we're glad that you're here. But Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. I know a lot of you know that, but there are a lot of us who don't know that. So, Or maybe we're not that familiar with it, or maybe it's been a while since we've been in church. It's the first book of the New Testament. It was written by one of Jesus's 12 disciples, or what we would call students. And these 12 guys, there's actually more like 72 of them, but these 12 guys followed Jesus around for three years, and they watched everything he did, they listened to everything he said, and one of them, or a couple of them wrote down some of the uh, uh, things that Jesus did and said. Matthew is one of them, writing specifically to a primarily Jewish audience. And so Jesus, and, and Matthew really highlights this, as does the Gospel of Luke, but Jesus tells a lot of parables. Now, if you're not familiar with the parable, let me explain to you. A parable is, a, uh, is an element or a device, a resource that Jesus would use to be able to make a main point and to teach. Because just like we do today, we learn a lot through story, whether written or on the screen. And, and, and definitely uh, orally, when people tell stories, we listen. And so back then, in a, in a culture where paper is very expensive, people relied on their memory, they relied on their auditory skills hugely. And so Jesus told parables again and again. They're fictitious stories with one main point. And usually other elements in the parable are really exaggerated. Sometimes people listening to what Jesus says will be in the parable, he'll put them in the parable, But God is always there. There's a main point, and things are exaggerated because the story is fiction, but it's proving Jesus' point. And there's something in this parable today that if we really pay attention to it, it will help us to remember who we are in a society and when we have relationships and our insecurities, they're distracting us from either seeing or remembering who we are. So in Matthew 22, Jesus starts with this parable. Let's look at Matthew 22, verse 2. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now let's just stop right there. First of all, you see that phrase, kingdom of heaven. Sometimes when you read the four gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life, you'll see kingdom of God. 
And to me, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that is a collect, is different from the church, but that is a collection of all of God's people that have ever followed the one true God from the beginning of the earth to the end of the earth. That is the collection of the kingdom of God. This is why I say I am first and foremost a citizen of God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom, on the one hand, it's coming in a very real sense in the future, but on another hand, it is here present among us right now. And it lives through us and through the Holy Spirit, living through believers. And it, it is a kingdom. It has politics. We have a king. We serve him. He gives us orders. Take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. See how we're supposed to engage with one another and engage in society. This is why a fuller seminary professor named George Eldon Ladd called this the already not yet kingdom. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God is here by how we love and treat one another and through the Holy Spirit, but it's coming in a very real and physical way in the future. And so he, he's teaching us about the kingdom of God, and he's like, hey, it's going to be compared to a king who gives a wedding feast. This king is very, very wealthy. Most people in the first century lived in a one-room house. This king like lives in multiple rooms, has enough money where he has servants. He's doing a huge feast, and he's having a huge wedding banquet. And he sends his servants out to invite his friends. That's who he would invite. Specifically, those in his economic group are the ones that he would invite. Back in the first century, you had about this many people who were in the top economic group right here. You would have about this many people in the middle class and this many people in poverty in first century Palestine, first century Judea. And so he's inviting his friends, probably the top 1%, 5%, 10%, whatever you want to say, in this city or village or country, but all of them say no. Like, you're not supposed to refuse this guy's invitation. This guy is important. You wouldn't say no, even if you really didn't like him. You know what it would be like? It would be like if Queen Elizabeth called me. I don't think she has myself, but let's just say that she does. And she says, Caleb, I want you to come have dinner with us at Buckingham Palace. You can spend the night, okay? You, you, I'll pay for your airfare first class, and then we'll fly you back. You can bring your wife. You know what I'm going to say? Liz, I'm in. <laughs> what airport? Just tell me where I need to go. You're like, oh, I don't know if I like the queen. It's the queen. You would go, I bet the food is worth it. You would go. But for you say, no, I'm not going to go. Well, I mean, okay, give me your ticket. Like, that just means you don't like that person. And so the king tries to give them another chance. Look at verse 4. Again, the king sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, his friends who were invited, paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So you're like, whoa, this got dark real quick. We went from zero to 120 miles an hour in a second. That's why I say, when you read these parables, everything is exaggerated. Because Jesus is trying to make a point. One of the points he's making is that, you know, he's, he's really directing a lot of this at the Pharisees, the religious elite, the religious leaders of the day, the pastors of the day, who were supposed to be for God, but they weren't acting like that. And he's saying, you are just like your 
ancestors, your forefathers and your foremothers who, you know, were Jewish and they treated the prophets horribly and they killed the prophets and you're doing the same thing. Look how you just stood by and watched on the Baptist get killed. I mean, he's making a point there. And the bigger point is, is that, you know, thing is, is that he invited those who he thought were for him and they hated him. They were against him. And so here's what he does. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. And I would put a footnote or are dead. Um, (laughs) Verse nine, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is another point in the, in the story, in the parable, where people listen to Jesus, their jaw would hit the ground. They're like, there's no way. There's no way you would do that. Because back in the first century, you did not cross economic or racial barriers. And Jesus is telling his servants to do both. And the Pharisees and the listeners, they're picking up on it. He's saying, go to the city, the town, the country, go to the main roads, go to the outskirts, go outside of the city, cross the economic boundaries. People in the upper class did not invite people in poverty, but he says, invite everybody, invite the good and the bad, invite the criminals and the non-criminals, invite the outlaws and the in-laws and everybody else laws. Invite the people who are not even citizens of the country. You cross racial barriers, a.k.a. you invite the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and bring them in. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It is a mosaic of people from every single background. That's why Revelation 7-9 says that before the throne of the Lamb is every tongue, tribe, and nation. And you see this reflected here. And then we get to the conclusion. But the, king came, but the king came and looked at the guests during the wedding feast. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get into this place without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You see, today depending on, you know, your wedding, sometimes you pay for people to get their bridesmaid dresses or um, their, their, their tuxes. Either you pay for the dresses or you rent the tuxes and you pay for everything or you have people do that. Um, the king bought wedding garments for everybody who was attending. You would put on these wedding garments so that no matter how your clothes look beforehand, you looked pristine clean because that was reflective of the, the covenant of marriage that just happened. And you got to keep those. And so he sees somebody trying to get into the wedding feast on his or her own terms. He sees this individual. He's trying to get in there. He's in there without the garments. He's saying, I'm trying to do this on my own. I don't need your covering. I don't need anything that you have. He's not identifying primarily in that moment with the king and as a guest. And he gets thrown out. Then Jesus says, many are invited, few are chosen. Who are the chosen? The ones who responded to the invitation. Because the ones who responded to the invitation realized when they walked in there, they joined the king's family. They were part of the kingdom. When you get into a place where you forget who you are, what Christ has done for you, you're tempted to 
identify by something else, listen to what other people say about you when you're tempted to categorize others or listen to your own insecurities about yourself, here's what I want you to remember. Whose you are defines who you are. Whose you are defines who you are. Real quick, let's say this together, okay? What's the first word? Okay, not everybody said that. And trust me, we will say it until everybody says it. I'm German. We will do it over and over again. I'm stubborn. We are stubborn people. What's that first word? Everybody said it. Okay. Whose you are defines who you are. Yeah, I should have said say the rest of it because then it's awkward. Whose you are defines who you are. Some of you are saying, well, you know, maybe you don't identify as a Christian. You know, who am I? Here's how you know whose you are. You are not defined by a what. You and I have other identities. We are fathers, we're mothers, we're siblings. Um, we work at different organizations. Maybe we're a manager, maybe we're the boss, maybe we're not. Um, whatever it is, you know, we're sons and daughters. We have different identities or roles, but we always have a primary role and identity. And if you want to know whose you are, not what owns you, but who, here are two questions that you ask. Who created me? Who died for me? Whoever created you and whoever died to redeem you gets to define you, period. Whoever created you and whoever died for you gets to define you. Whose you are defines who you are. And this is so incredibly important because when I place my main identity, my primary identity in Christ, guess what? He guards my identity. I don't have to try to fight to protect my identity. When I place my identity in Christ, he protects it. That allows me to be an ordinary person through whom which God does extraordinary things. But if your identity, your main identity is not placed in Christ, you will always be fighting and trying to defend who you are. But when you trust Jesus, he protects it for you. He guards it. This is so incredibly important. Because maybe in these moments, if we truly believed our identity was in Christ and we felt that security, maybe it would shut off some of the insecurity that some of us have and maybe we would realize that the goal in society when it comes to these kind of things is not to disagree less, it's to disagree better. It's to learn how to dialogue. Let me, let me tell you how this plays out in my life. Who you are defines who you are. So um, I, some of you may know this, some of you may not. But um, I'm originally, like I said, from Columbia in Kansas City, Missouri. My parents were both professors at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and some other area colleges. When I was two years old, they divorced, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. And so my whole childhood, I was raised by two lesbians and a gay man. My dad was more in the closet my mom and Vera, were, uh, who is a psychologist, they moved to Kansas City, which is why I'm a huge Chiefs fan, city of the greatest NFL team in the world. And they moved there. They were together 22 years until Vera died of cancer. And they were activists. I grew up in preschool, elementary age, middle school, going with them to clubs and bars, campouts, house parties, pride parades. And I remember this one pride parade I marched in. At the end of the parade, there were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, no room for you. And when people from my mom's parade would go try to talk to them, these so-called Christians would spray them with water and urine, saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. I looked at my mom as an elementary age kid when I saw this, and I'm like, why are they acting like that? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. 
If you are not like them, they will not like you. And I saw it proved time and time again growing up. I saw Christian families ignoring their young sons dying of AIDS in the 1980s, the beginning of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. I saw people ignoring their young sons or going to the hospital, not even talking to them. And they're like, well, we're taking a moral stand for Jesus. No, there's a difference between taking a moral stand and being a moron. You are the latter. God will judge one, not the other. I don't care if you disagree with somebody. That gives you no right to mistreat them. And so by the time I was 16, I was sneaking out at night, getting drunk, partying up. My parents didn't care. My hair was down to here. Um, And since then, the Lord removeth and addeth. It's not funny. I feel like this is a roast. It's not funny. So I ended up, um, when I was 16, I got invited by a high schooler to go to a Bible study that he put on on his house for high schoolers. And I thought, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go and I'm going to be a pretend Christian, a ninja Christian and dismantle their faith. And you can tell that worked out really well. Um, I walked into their house and you got to understand at the age of 16, first of all, I'm going to describe their house. If this describes your house, I'm not making fun of you. Don't feel bad. I'm just saying that at the age of 16, I did not I had not walked into a conservative or evangelical Christian household, much less a Catholic household. I walked into this house. It looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore during a riot. It looked like they had just picked up a Bible bookstore and dropped it right in their living room. You walk in, they had the potpourri smell. You guys know? Like there's a, you're like, oh, that's refreshing. Many times I go out and go back in because I want to see if it's just me and it's not, it's, it's there. Then they, they had Christian breath mints. You guys know we have our own breath mints? Did you guys know that? Did you ever try them? They're called testaments. Yeah, yeah, there's some of you are like, oh, I get it. Some of you are like, Google it later. Not right now. Talk to Pastor Mike. He'll help you afterwards, okay? Don't ever try a testament, though. I tried one, spit it right out on their floor. I was so embarrassed. I've never spit on somebody's floor like that. But... You have to when something tastes like peppermint and cyanide mixed together. It was awful. Okay? Not representative of Jesus. And then I'm looking on the wall. They had all the framed Bible bookstore pictures. Have you seen those? They're on the wall. And I'm looking at them. They're strange to me. I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of animals like sheep with Bible verses? Like I've never been in a house before where somebody framed a picture of an animal they didn't own and stuck it up on their wall like that. And then they had another picture with a kid playing with a cobra and a lion and a sheep. And I'm like, we're going to sacrifice a chicken. And then somebody comes from the basement. My friend, he's like, oh, you're here. We circled up downstairs. Why don't you join us? And I'm like, well, this is the beginning of a horror movie. You know, (laughs) I've just said, I'll be right back. I'm going downstairs to the basement. I mean, I'm the guy they find near the end of the movie. Right? So we go there. Everybody's circled up. Everybody's reading from 1 Corinthians. I didn't know where 1 Corinthians was. Like, I didn't know God put a table of contents in the Bible. And so, like, I, they're reading from 1 Corinthians, and I'm thinking, I'll just read a verse from 1 Chronicles. They won't know the difference. I read a verse about some dude getting impaled. <laughs> they're like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in 1 Chronicles. They're like, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I'm like, is there a new one? I didn't even know there was updated 2.0. I didn't know that we had gone a level up or whatever from the Old Testament. 
But I kept on going back, and I realized that Jesus had very deep theological convictions and very real expectations of how his followers should pursue holiness and love other people, but he also had very authentic and personal relationships with people who are nothing like him, people who are marginalized in society, people that the religious elite of his day would have nothing to do with. And I love what Pastor Andy Stanley at North Point in Atlanta says. He says that people who are nothing, who are nothing like Jesus like Jesus, and he liked them back. And I was like, I can get on board with that. And I started studying what the Bible had to say about um, sexuality, intimacy, marriage, and so on and so forth. Because I I started feeling like I might want to be a Christian, but I got to, you know, wade through these waters. And so I I came to two conclusions. The first one, I mean, I hold both of them, you know, together, even today. First one is this, that I believe, after studying this and keeping on to studying this, and we're going to talk more about this tonight, as a matter of fact. So you want to come back and we're going to have a Q&A time. But I believe with all my heart that God designed sexual intimacy and sexual affection to be expressed in a marriage between one man and one woman. I believe that. I think it's hard to read this book and not believe that. But I also believe this, that a theological conviction should never be a catalyst to devalue another human being. That your biblical beliefs should never lend you permission to malign somebody else. Because here's the thing. You as Christians are commanded to accept people no matter what. Meaning loving them where they are. You are not commanded to agree with what everybody does or everybody's decision. But you are commanded to accept. True love is built on acceptance. Cheap love is built on agreement. And so I woke up one morning and I called my friend Greg said, Greg, I think I've turned Christian. Like I felt like I had a disease or something. And I'm like, what should I do? And he's like, well, let's go eat Chinese food and I'll baptize you. Well, there you go. That was in Acts 2.38. Let's do that. Let's eat the general's chicken and the orange pork and then go get baptized. So I did. And I, I was so nervous to tell my parents. And when I told my parents, they kicked me out. So when I speak to other students, or other college students or high school students, and I tell them about you know, my story, they're like, you have no idea what it's like to be disowned or kicked out of your house because of who you believe you are. And I said, actually, I do. I know exactly how that feels. And the pain and the oppression that you feel from somebody else never gives you the right to return it to anyone else because then, in a sick and twisted way, you are acting like the person that hurts you. That's how hate transfers from action to action from feeling to feeling. Eventually, they let me back in. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm adorable. I have no idea. But they eventually let me back in. And, and I'll get back to them in a second. But I really started to digest what it meant to, to have an identity in Christ, to understand that it is about who I am in Christ, that whose you are defines who you are. So how do we live this out? A couple things I want to say, because I'm already going over time, okay? But you're the last service, so bleh. Um, <laughs> First one is this, follow Jesus more than traditions and trends. Let me just read that one last time, because I'm sure this kind of upsets everybody to some degree, or a lot of people. You're either on the tradition side or the trend side. Follow Jesus more than traditions or trends. Traditions? There's some good traditions. Well, there's a difference between traditions and commands, traditions and convictions. A lot of traditions are human-made. 
A lot of trends show where we are right now. It's a snapshot. There's a reason why they're called trends, because they trend up, then they plateau, then they turn down. Trends are always shifting. That's why if you base what you believe and your values and ethics on society, you will be exhausted because you will always be changing what you believe. Constantly. But when you place your identity in Christ, it never changes. Our posture, our strategy may change. Our identity and what we believe never changes. Because on one side, you get to be too traditional. If you're guarding traditions on the other side, you get to be to the extreme on the, over here. If you're always about the trends. Okay, th- this is why I tell people, look, you're going to be a lot happier if you don't watch the news all the time. You just will. You're going to be happier if you don't watch CNN and NBC all the time. You won't want to kill people. And then you're going to be happier if you don't watch Fox News all the time. Like, you still won't want to kill people. Maybe a little, but not really. Um, do what I do. I'm watching Unsolved Mysteries. I used to watch news all the time, and I was, like, really you know, like angry. Now I watch Unsolved Mysteries, and I'm just scared all the time <laughs> on a regular basis. So if you have to choose one, choose fear and being scared over the anger. You know, Just watch something else, because one drives you to traditions, to the law side, the rule side, no matter what. One drives you to the grace side, to where it's not even grace anymore. It's just enablement. This is so important. The second thing is this. Think deeper about people, not differently about theology. I'm asking you not to change what you believe. I'm asking you to consider shifting your posture towards people. Because nobody's shallow. There's not one person who's shallow. Think about the person that annoys you the most. Or people. Whether you met them or not. It's easy, easy to categorize them. You know why? Because we don't want difficult people in our life. So we put them in and go, well, you know, that's how they are. If you say something like that, you got issues. Which we all do, so we all have issues. But we got to try to get past that and realize that everybody is a conglomeration, really a mosaic or an amalgam of, of their experiences and their relationships and their hopes and their joys and their achievements and mistakes and failures and childhood and upbringing and beliefs and so on and so forth. There's not one person who is shallow. There are a lot of people that put up walls to make themselves look shallow, but they aren't. And when we categorize people and just say, well, that's how they are. That's these people. That's what they believe. Blah, 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 blah. What we're doing is we are adding pain onto the pain that is already there. And then you become just like the people that hurt them. That's why Jesus said, if somebody forced you to go one mile, go with them too. If somebody slaps you on one cheek, operative in the other. Somebody sues you for their, your coat, give them your shirt as well. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5, 14 and Romans 13, 8 through 10 that loving your neighbor fulfills the law. We have to learn to think differently about people, not, I mean, we need to think deeper about people, not differently about theology. So here's what happened. So I, my parents let me back in. I went to Bible college in the Mecca of Christianity, Joplin, Missouri. And then, yeah, there we go again. And then we ended up moving. Um, I moved to California in 1999 when I graduated, when it was still cool to move to California, and people were doing that kind of a thing. And I was on staff at a church that I'm currently on staff at for about 10, no, for 11 years. Met my wife there. Wish you could meet her. My wife, like, she goes to, like, the gym almost every day. She was there to text me this morning. Um, she's got, like, a six-pack. I think you can tell I'm a big fan of uh, Netflix and ice cream. Um, <laughs> It's worked for me a lot. And um, like my wife, she is a muy caliente Latina. 
And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Fester Grew and Dr. Evil right here. This is... <laughs> this is her eye candy she wakes up to every morning. She is a lucky, lucky lady. And so I felt like I wanted to preach after being an associate pastor for 11 years and so moved to Dallas, Texas because we've all got to live in purgatory at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, but come on, you've got, it's hostile environment. You've got Mark Cuban there, that's hostile. You've got Jerry Jones, you've got Jerry World, which is there, um, which, by the way, I, I just think it's poetic justice that now Los Angeles has a better stadium than Jerry Jones. That, that's, I'm just going to leave that gem right there on the stage. <laughs> and Dallas is a great place to go if you want to gain weight. Like, the restaurants there are phenomenal. So if you're looking to put on a few pounds, go to Dallas. It's a great place to go. And so... I preached there for three and a half years. My parents moved there separately of one another to be closer to our family. Then they started attending the church that I was preaching at, even though they knew what I believed. And then here's what happened. Here's what happened. We moved back to Southern California in 2013. Two weeks before we did, at the ages of 69, 70, my parents gave their lives to Jesus Christ and trusted them. I asked my parents what did it, and here's what they said. People treated us like people, not like projects. People treated them like human beings. You don't need a big, fancy, evangelistic method. I mean, you should know about evangelism, but you don't need, like, to hear these new evangelistic ninja moves. It doesn't work. You know what works? Treating somebody like a person, treating them like a human being. Developing a relationship, telling them they're funny, hanging out with them, telling them they're annoying at times. That's what works, treating them like a person. And so two questions I want to leave you with, because I'm really over time now, and I, I don't want to have, you know, get taken out here. So here's the first question. When you forget whose you are defines who you are, ask yourself these two questions. Number one, what does Jesus require of my sexuality? What does he require of my sexuality? If you follow Jesus, what does he require of your sexuality? Because Jesus requires our whole life. The Christian life is a continual act of surrendering to Jesus for the rest of our lives. He wants something from every part of our life. What does he require of your sexuality if you follow him? I almost put this question in here. I didn't, but it's kind of similar. Um, will you be willing to trust Jesus even when you disagree with him? Are you willing to trust what Jesus says, even if your romantic dreams never come true? Are you willing to trust what Jesus says, even if you disagree, even if you get made fun of? Are you willing to trust that he has your best interests in mind, that he can look down the corridor of time and see things that you can't? And here's the last question that I, want, that I think you should ask. What am I willing to do to keep and build influence with, and you fill in the blank with somebody's name? When you start feeling tempted to push somebody to the side, ask yourself, what am I willing to do to keep and build influence with my son, my daughter, my spouse, my, my grandchild, my neighbor, my coworker? Because at the end of the day, I, I love my kids. I disciple them. I can't tell them what to think, but I can't build influence with them. And short of sinning, I'm willing to do whatever I can to build influence with them so that when their life hits the bottom of the barrel, I want to be one of the first text or phone calls that they make. 
I want to earn that right, and you can't do that without influence, and you can't build influence without disrespecting, without respecting somebody's reality. How far are you willing to go to have that influence? Because how far did Jesus go for you? He gave up his life. He died. How far are we willing to go for each other? I think all of us can go further than what we are right now without compromising what we believe theologically. Whose you are defines who you are. Let me pray for you, Lord. Thank you so much for these people. For those of us in here who don't know Jesus, help us to either talk to somebody after the service or maybe um, this week to reach out and to ask somebody, who is Jesus or what what is the next step I need to take? And for those of us who do follow you, Father, may we help us to repent of what we need to repent of, for the way we treated people, for what we thought, for thinking that our convictions and our posture are the same, which they're not. Help us to love better and help some of us to not change what we believe, to not sacrifice our convictions, to try to help a relationship. You should never do that. Help us to have enough character and faith in you to know that you are the store of all things. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.